Hi, and welcome back to The Voice of Healthcare, episode 10 for April 2018. My name is Bradley Metrock. I'm CEO of a company called Score Publishing based here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Matt Sobolski. Matt, say hello. Hello, America and the world. Hello, Bradley. Matt, it's been a while uh, since our last episode. Thank you for joining us. This is going to be fun. I'm always glad to be here. I'm really excited about who we have on today. A really fun vector to talk about. Yeah, this is great. Uh, Our guest today is Tama Duffy Day. Tama, say hello. Hi, Matt. Hi, Brad. Tama, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Really honored to have you. You are a principal uh, and health and wellness practice leader for Gensler. Tell us about Gensler and tell us about what you do. I'd be happy to. So Gensler is a global design firm, and we are involved in designing architecture and interior design, but also brand planning and urban design and product design. And we work with clients large and small, for-profit, non-for-profit. And I have a fascinating, wonderful position at Gensler where I lead our health and wellness practice and really seek to deliver and design and innovate in the field of healthcare. Very cool. So one of the things that you are an expert in is something called generative space. As someone who's not involved from a professional standpoint in the healthcare industry, other than co-moderating this show, I find this concept extremely interesting that there is such a thing as generative space, that there's people actively thinking about this, such as yourself. Tell us what is generative space and how are hospitals or different healthcare uh, operations thinking about generative space? Yes, generative space, I would agree. It's a really, it's a fascinating um, concept of design. I've been working with Dr. Wayne Ruga, who lives in England on this topic for about 15 years And in its simplest form, generative space is really a place to flourish. And by that, we mean a place both physical and social that improves health, healthcare, and the quality of life for those who engage. And its purpose is really to increase performance and effectiveness and to really create lasting relationships. One example of my first engagement in generative space was working with a client called the Arlington Free Clinic. And we designed a new clinic for them that was opened in 2009. And Nancy Sanger Pallison, who was the chief executive officer at the time, really worked closely with me in trying to interpret and understand literally what generative space means. And for them, we were really able to engage their staff, their shareholders, their volunteers, and their patients to design a space that really encouraged health, and it encouraged proper interaction. And over the years in pre- and post-occupancy evaluations, we've learned that they've been able to see more patients, 
that they've increased the number of patients they literally can see because of the effectiveness and organization of the clinic, but they've also increased the number of volunteers over the past number of years because the place really supports health. And um, in one of our visioning sessions with Nancy, as we were starting the project, we said, well, when we're done with this project, you know, how would we know we were successful? And she said, well, I want people to walk in and say, wow. And ironically, it actually happened. We were standing there close to opening and, um, one of the patients opened the door for another patient that was coming in and unprompted, he said, welcome to the Arlington Free Clinic. This is a place for health. And we just looked at each other and, you know, smiled because, you know, when others interpret and see and sense that the place has been designed successfully, um, you know, it means that you have accomplished some of your goals. And we're actually working with them now on a minor renovation and, and going back and testing the hypotheses of how the design was was created and um, expanding some of their service to include dental care, which wasn't a part of the original project. How, from your standpoint, do you look to incorporate technology such as, you know, in the case of Voice First FM, voice-first technology, such as voice assistants like Alexa or Google Assistant or possibly some privately designed stuff or maybe even taking it a step further uh, with machine learning or AI. You know, obviously, you're, you've got, you're designing aesthetics here. You're designing the environment. And um, inherent in that design process is going to be thinking about how technology can augment uh, what you're doing Share with us a little bit about how you, from your standpoint, your experience, your background, look to incorporate technology within this generative space concept. Well, generative space is a lot about empathy as well. You know, so there's this high tech and, you know, high touch part of what we do that I think integrate well. And technology in healthcare is this constantly evolving element that does require both design engagement, as well as I think philosophical engagement. Um, And as I'm sure you're well aware, the movement into telemedicine and remote uh, applications of conversing with patients and providers is really key. And we've been working with um, patients and providers to understand, you know, what does that mean? How do you keep an interaction alive? You know, much like we're doing today, we're talking I don't really see you. I'm talking on a microphone and yet I have a connection to you because I can sense it in some way. Either it's the tone of your voice and so really having clarity in the communication, um, acoustic sound, lighting and telemedicine are really critical. And unfortunately, healthcare tends to be one of the kind of slower moving uh, industries when we move into new technologies, but it is happening. And, you know, we see it every day in our work with them. You know, you're a highly decorated designer, so this is something that obviously you're you're passionate about. Um, you know, what I do know about your work is the incorporation of emotion. You mentioned a moment ago about hearing us, about sensing us. Um, Martha Nussbaum, who is one of my all-time favorite philosophers and public intellectuals, has this wonderful quote. And she says, emotions are not just the fuel that powers the psychological mechanism of reasoning creatures. They are parts of complex, messy creatures of reasoning themselves. Um, That being the case, I see that you 
value the intelligence that emotions offers um, humans. And it seems as if you're trying to incorporate that into your design. Um, it was uh, heartening for me to hear you say that um, somebody addressed the building that you guys have des had designed as a place of health instead of a place of, of illness. Could you talk a little bit more about how emotions are incorporated into your design philosophy, especially as it relates to healthcare? Sure. Uh, you touched on a lot of really important parts. And, you know, if you think of the part of, of one's life when you're fragile and, um, you know, susceptible to perhaps more emotion, I can't think of a, a higher topic than health. Whether you're giving birth to a baby, you know, some of the most emotional highs, or whether you're sharing the last moments of breath with a loved one, you know, perhaps one of the most emotional lows that health and healthcare really touches all of us at an emotional level, a very powerful emotional level. And, you know, the entire existence, I think, of my career has really been focused on watching and listening and observing um, not only others, but my own interaction with healthcare providers and understanding how place makes a difference in that interaction. And going back to generative space for a moment, the idea of that is really that the provider and the patient are equals. And I'm just going to pause on that for a second, because in my parents' generation, it wasn't really the case. The provider gave them directions, and they kind of followed it. They didn't question them. I was, you know, I would sit with my, with my you know, aging parents in their conversations with their physicians and they nodded their heads and they shook their head and they listened and they, they never really asked questions or had an opinion about doing something differently. And I think that that isn't really the case for healthcare anymore. I think that we investigate, we research, we ask others their opinion. And this is a really critical part of designing places, but also designing the interaction between between care providers and, um, and patients. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. Um, in my interactions, though, what I found is that um, the authority gradient that exists in the provider side, as well as the patient side, you know, as far as their perspective, um, still exists to a large degree. Um, like you, I've also had experiences where the value of connecting emotionally, like integrating with a patient base for a provider has resulted in healthier outcomes, sustained outcomes. Do you think that with your design or with this sort of momentum towards equality of care and integration emotionally of care um, that we'll have more uh, advances in how we decide to levy healthcare across the United States? Is it possible that physical design or uh, maybe uh, how you're incorporating design perspectives to your clients can uh, help move that um, needle a little bit towards uh, some equanimity and uh, quality in the care? That's a huge topic and a huge question. Um, so I'm going to suggest answering that in, in two ways, one at a micro level. So we've been involved with testing the validity of an exam room with the Rush University Medical Center in Chicago and outlining and understanding, you know, over 80 attributes of an exam room design that impacts the provider's ability to provide the care that they need to, to give during that interaction in exam room, but also really focused on the patient. 
the consumer of healthcare and understanding their perception. And one of the important elements of the design of something as simple as an exam room was creating a place for the interaction with the patient and the provider in a specific way so that they could look at each other, share the medical records together, and design a workstation that the provider could function and make notes, but also that the patient could interact with them at that same kind of intimate space. And that was an important element of the design of that room. So at a micro level, something as simple as that impacts communication, which impacts your understanding of what the provider is sharing with you about their belief about your health. And then at the macro scale, I mean, we design cities, So imagine, you know, the design of a city in such a way that it supports walking, that it supports um, being out in nature, that this places and spaces that we design in a city integrate transportation and integrate retail and health and entertainment and sports in such a manner that we support um, longevity in how we live our lives. Yeah, I think there's no question that the quality of life is uh, its own medicine, uh, the food you're eating, the, the lack of stress or reduction in stress in your day-to-day, um, designing spaces that allow people to be the social animals they are in a healthy manner. Um, I couldn't agree with that more. Uh, I'm going to take a shift for a second here and kind of put a little bit more of your futurist lenses on you. Uh, two questions. Where is the design of healthcare headed? I, I love the momentum you've got thinking about human emotions and integration into the space. But beyond that, where are we headed? What's it, what's it going to look like later? Um, and then the second question is, and this is on a lot of people's minds, is women in design. Is there a movement towards feminine sort of philosophies when we look at uh, designing spaces as a benefit to all patients. And I mean, feminism in the sense, like the classical philosophical sense of feminism, right? So like uh, nurturing, justice, fairness, um, those kinds of terms, not necessarily gender feminism. In terms of what does the future look like? I, you know, we, so we have think tanks in our, in our firm where we bring in thought leaders from around the industry to imagine what their perception of the future is. And we've had several of these in the last few months that have been really focusing on experience. And, you know, I described in what I would find is an amazing interaction with a provider is that I would walk into a room and the entire wall of that space would have my medical information on it, you know, my genetic data, my last blood results, uh, information about height and weight and anything else that had been going on. And I had an opportunity to touch the screen and move things around and look at different parts of my body and body systems and understand like what's been happening in real time, but also looking historically and into the future. And that I could interact with all of this literally somehow digitally and through technology, and that it wouldn't really matter to me if the provider was in the room or not. And I guess if I really thought about this, maybe I'm doing this in my own home and I'm able to look at all of this, but I think a part of the future is about access. We've talked a lot about big data. What does big data mean? How do we support it? You know, we understand, you know, there are some architectural and engineering components of data because you do need places for it to to reside and to ensure this 24-7 operability 
So those are pieces architecturally that we're focused on. But I think that technology will appear in a variety of ways in robots. Um, we're going to have more access to health in our homes. And I really think it's going to, you know, it continues to turn our industry upside down, which I love because we are a part of being disruptors in that marketplace. And in terms of um, feminism, well, and I'm sure you know this, but, you know, healthcare decisions are made 90% by women. If you look around you and think about how that happened, some of the transformation of healthcare happened in the labor, delivery, and recovery area. Um, hospitals began to uh, market, if you will, their LDR suites, their maternity wards to healthy women because women giving birth are typically healthy, and women would shop for where they would provide, where they would go to give birth to their child. And through that, the health system learned that if you got a woman and her child and their family into the health system, she tended to stay in that health system for the entire length of that uh, family's existence in that location. So it's a very powerful connection between birth and connecting with that provider for the rest of the care. Additionally, women tend to make decisions for all family members, not only their immediate family, but in-laws, grandparents, and children. So women have a very powerful um, piece in the future of health and in the current state of health. And in Joseph Conklin's book called The Longevity Economy, there's a whole chapter on the future is female. And he believes that we've yet to uncover all of the possibilities of women's thought and leadership in design and innovation in healthcare specifically. And it's a very, um, for me, it was a very optimistic view of the future and our place in future and creating that future place. Tim, I've got a question for you uh, to close, um, and it's going to take it a little bit different of a direction. Back in January, you reposted something to your LinkedIn profile that was originally posted on Gensler's site called Sound Health, How Noise Can Inspire Healing. So I'm, I'm a classically trained pianist since age four. Uh, I'm a huge music fan, and I'm fascinated by the idea of sound therapy or music therapy, just the concept of that some which away, you know, music is capable of healing us. And I believe that I don't, I don't need to see any sort of data uh, to know that that's true. Uh, and I found this article that you uh, reposted uh, that was posted to Gensler's site at first, uh, extremely interesting. And the project itself is very interesting that y'all did with the Sibley Innovation Hub and Yoko. I, I want to ask you, um, you know, th there's a couple things going on here. I, part of what we talk about regularly with Voice First FM is all the different ways that these smart speakers and the fact that we're getting these audio devices into people's homes in a way that no one ever thought was going to be happening and these voice assistants and the rise of voice first technology sound is becoming much more important and much more sort of omnipresent. And, um, you know, Matt and I have talked on this show before about how senior citizens are helped just to mention one example of many by the fact that they can uh, not be as isolated and not be as depressed for being isolated by just simply being able to talk to one of these voice assistants, have a conversation with Alexa or Google Assistant, and it brightens their day a little bit. Um, and just that sound, that interaction, the sound of hearing this voice talking to them, 
makes a difference. I just wanted to close by asking you about this project that you did and what you have learned about how sound can heal us and um, some of the takeaways from, from what y'all did here. Yeah, I love that you did some homework. That's fantastic. And thank you for reading that. It was a, it's a three-part blog series called Sound Health, and it really um, outlines a journey that we took and have been on with Yoko Sen, a sound alchemist, and as you mentioned, working with the Johns Hopkins Sibley Innovation Hub. We were fortunate enough to be able to begin this journey when Yoko uncovered the fact that providers in some of the intensive care units at Sibley were in need of or in desire of a place to escape. And that came through rigorous research that Yoko uncovered through Sibley's Innovation Hub on um, the need for wellness and well-being and emotional restoration. And, you know, emotion is a really important part of, of how we care and provide care. And if you're a, if you're a provider, you can only imagine, or I can only imagine if I put my, my head in pretending to be a nurse or a provider on an intensive care unit where people are very sick and they, you know, not always make it through their journey and do pass on. And so we created with Yoko a tranquility room where the providers can find a moment. Sometimes it's even as little as 10 seconds to step away and recover, if you will, emotionally from stress or trauma um, that may have happened or gone on in their shift while working in providing care. And it was a really fascinating project that began with not only the understanding of sound, but of looking at all the senses and how we could create a space that provided um, a calming sound that Yoko designed. It had art, it had um, color and shape and form, um, there is aromatherapy going on. It was really looking at a space that could nourish in just a few moments or just even a few seconds or minutes um, a care provider and provide some tranquility in their space. You're absolutely right that as we age, isolation and engagement is a really critical piece. And um, I'm on the board of Capitol Hill Village, which is an organization on Capitol Hill here in Washington, D.C. that's really focused on keeping seniors and the elderly in our communities in their homes as long as possible. And the social aspect of that is one of the critical pieces of engaging. And I guess I'll take this right back to generative space because, which was beginning of our conversation because it's about both space and physical and social. And the social aspect of our lives is a very critical piece of us being healthy. And so designing for a social space as we spoke about the future thinking and designing not only the exam room, but a city, as we design social spaces, it connects us in meaningful ways for longevity and for health and for well-being in like every aspect of that. Um, those that want to read more about sound health can, you know, log on to the blog series that we wrote about that article and read more about Yoko and the great work that she's doing. And we're going to link to that as well in the show notes couple points before we close, just a couple of promotional things that we want to make sure to mention um, for the audience that's listening. Tuesday, August the 7th, many of you have marked your calendars. If you're just now learning about it, mark your calendar. The Voice of Healthcare Summit at Harvard Medical School at the Martin Conference Center. 
This is a big deal. Uh, incredible lineup for this thing. The website is uh, www.vohsummit.com. We will link to that as well, and we will continue to mention that as we get closer. And the other part is that we've got a Voice of Healthcare flash briefing. Matt, is that up and running? It's up and running. Um, we just got clearance, and we're going to start having daily episodes every business day starting Monday. Awesome. Awesome. So a couple of things we want to make sure everybody knows. Yeah, just make sure you add it to your flash briefing and you can hear it on the way to work or while you're having your coffee. There you go. There you go. That's what we're here for. Um, Tama, incredible fountain of insight. Thank you for joining us, sharing some of your time with us and your experience as well. You're very welcome. And I encourage everyone to also go on to the Gensler Design Exchange podcast where I've interviewed other healthcare industry experts. And it really aligns nicely with the podcast that you're doing. So thank you for us in connecting these two. Yeah, we'll be sure to do that. Thank you so much for coming on today. It was fantastic. Thank you both. For The Voice of Healthcare, episode 10. Thank you for listening. And until next time.